Last month, the owner of a chain of British hi-fi shops did something unusual. Julian Richer, the founder of Richer Sound, gave away control of the company to the employees and even gave them each a £1,000 cash bonus for every year they've worked there. It's a rare move for company owners to give up their wealth. So, is it just generosity or could it actually be good for business? And could it also be good economics and even good for the planet? We believe that workers who create the wealth of a company should share in its ownership. And yes, in the returns that it makes. Let us give working people in this country the opportunity to own the places in which they are working. Let us make this... In the UK and the US, there's a growing movement for more employee ownership of big companies. Bernie Sanders wants to make companies put some of their stocks in a fund controlled by employees, and Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell has announced something similar. It's got a boring name, the Inclusive Ownership Fund, but apparently it's a radical idea. Employee ownership increases a company's productivity and encourages long-term decision-making. We're back for a brand new series of the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week we're getting excited about inclusive ownership. Stay with us. I'm joined by two expert guests, as usual, on either side of the Atlantic. Joining us on the line is Marjorie Kelly, Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow of the Democracy Collaborative in the US. Marjorie is also the co-founder of 50 by 50, a campaign aiming to get America to 50 million employee owners by 2050. More about that later. Welcome, Marjorie. Yes, thanks for having me, Aisha. Thanks so much for joining us. Also joining me is Matthew Lawrence, director of the think tank Commonwealth and co-author of a NEF report about inclusive ownership funds. Not happy about me saying the inclusive ownership title was boring. Welcome, Matthew. Yeah, thank, oh, yeah I'm barely recovered, but yeah, thank you very much. I'm very me. upset. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, you'll be able to get your own back later. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to get into all of the policy details in a moment. But first of all, let's start with the context. So, Marjorie... What's the problem that employee ownership is trying to solve in the U.S.? What a great place to start. You know, the problem is that capital controls the economy, and ownership is really the foundation of every economy. Whether you go back to the monarchy and you had the king and barons controlling it all, the industrial age, you had the robber barons controlling it, communism, the state controls it. We're in a financialized economy. Finance, capital controls it. And if we want a different kind of economy, we need broad-based ownership. And and employee ownership is is the one model uh, most ready for scale in this space. Interesting. And Matthew, do we, so do we have the same problems here in the UK, do you think, as the kind of thing that Marjorie's talking about in the US? I mean, I think there are a series of environmental, economic, social crises that are intertwined, and uh, you can find them on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think, you know, to some degrees, America is in in many ways more extreme, as always, in all of these things. Mm. But we share similarities, you know, deep inequality, sort of regional disparities, low levels of productivity, sort of, you know, workers... Average work is not really doing very well, but those at the top sort of doing very, very well. And part of that is exactly, as Marjorie said, this sort of architecture of ownership has meant many companies now have been turned into sort of engines of wealth extraction, taking wealth that we create in common upwards and out of the firm and distributing it to management, to wealthy shareholders, to institutional investors. And so, yeah, we do share some real institutional similarities and, I think, solutions. 
Just to come back to you for a second, Marjorie, what you were saying about if we want a different type of economy, um, is that is that what folks want in the US? Is that kind of a fringe idea or, or is the broad agreement that we, we do need to be moving in a different direction away from employee ownership? How, how kind of mainstream is that idea? Yeah, I think there's some nuance here, Aisha. And, and one is that yes, people do want a different kind of economy. 71% of Americans say they think the economy is rigged against them, mm. but people don't know how, you know? So, and so another piece, uh, a really, I think, shocking number is that you think about people who can't put together even $400 in the face of an emergency, right? Like mm. your child twists their ankle or, you know, you need a car repair. 47% of Americans don't have $400, in, in an emergency. So the lack of assets is dramatic and is uh, at a frightening level. And yet, so yes, do people want a new kind of economy? Yes. Do they understand that assets are at the root of it? No, I don't think they do. Because, mm. you know, we also have widespread financial um, lack of literacy. People, most people don't know the difference between assets and income. You mm. give someone... <laughs> You know, $10,000 asset, and they think, oh, that, that's income. I can go spend it. And, of course, if you're broke, that's true. But assets are something that keep their value over time. They actually produce value, whereas income comes in and goes out. And so if you own your home, if you own a piece of a business, you have an asset. It's going to grow over time. It's going to, it's going to yield you income over time. And so that is really where security lies. And do most people understand that? No. So I think that what we're, you know, people like, like Matthew and I, we're working to show, you know, rather than offering this huge complicated analysis, you say, wouldn't it be great to own a piece of your firm? You know, you, in, in the U.S., it shows that employee owners are one-fourth as likely to be laid off. They have twice the uh, retirement nest egg, and, and it goes on and on. So the outcomes are there. And when you ask people, you know, would you like uh, an employee ownership in our economy, they say yes. But is there a movement out there clamoring for it? Not yet. Mm, interesting. I mean, I certainly heard a lot of parallels between what Marjorie was saying about the states and here. Just to bring us back to the UK, Matthew, uh, the uh, the lovely Margaret Thatcher said that she wanted to build an economy where owning shares is as common as owning a car. So what happened? Who actually owns shares in UK companies now? So there's a really striking sort of story about share ownership, which is just one class of ownership, it's ownership in the major listed public companies. And I think, you know, there's a sort of deep irony in sort of the Thatcher sort of neoliberal turn mm -hmm. in that we went from a situation in the sort of 60s and 70s in which sort of individual share ownership, often sort of weighted towards wealthier people, but individual share ownerships sort of property owning democracy in sort of the Thatcher sense was very widespread. Yeah. Then actually what happened was sort of Thatcher's, you know, privatization, a real emphasis on sort of shareholder sovereignty, sort of an attempt to sort of broaden out share ownership, or at least in rhetoric. What you actually saw was that individual ownership collapsing, and what you saw was a huge expansion in ownership from overseas investors. So that's principally things like BlackRock, which are these big asset managers, which controls up to $6 trillion worth of assets globally. Mm. So actually what you saw, sort of ironically, but in some ways, you know, predictably, was this concentration of the control of capital, not in sort of individual dispersed shareholder democracies that sort of Thatcher was sort of sort of arguing for, but actually in these deep concentrated pockets in the economy, institutional investors who care about the sort of structure of capitalism as such, rather than the individual performance of a company, because actually your Black Rocks and your institutional investors, 
they've got such a spread of ownership that what they care about is, you know, capital doing well as a whole rather than mm. individual firms they invest in. There's this debate on the left that, like, well, you know, is, is employee ownership actually some sort of, you know, sort of actually it's a sort of not a particularly radical end. And I guess what you're sort of seeking is not just sort of, you know, to give people more of a sort of stake and a say in the firm they work in, but actually at a structural level to try and change the economy to democratise who has sort of voice in voting power and sort of mm. socialise that and socialise the sort of the returns on assets. Because otherwise, at the moment, what you have is, you know, what happened as a result of sort of Thatcher's revolution was this concentration of control of capital amongst big institutional investors, management class, and sort of like extractive rentiers in the economy. So the idea there is it's not just the people actually owning the shares, but it's also the, the idea that once they're kind of got a seat at the table, their voice and the decisions they make and the perspectives they bring will have a kind of net positive impact in terms of the direction that we want it to go. Absolutely. And I think one of the key sort of differences with something like sort of Thatcher's sort of privatisation, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but Thatcher's sort of privatisation agenda, and that sort of emphasis on sort of, you know, Telsid, everyone's going to own shares, a sort of small nest egg versus something like the Sanders plan, which, you know, the details aren't sort of fully there yet, but so sort of the Sanders plan, you mentioned uh, the inclusive ownership fund and its uh, boring <laughs> title that John McDonnell has adopted. I think the key thing there is these are sort of collective democratically governed forms of ownership. So it's very different to an individualised sort of you know, market-based form. These are locked collective forms of ownership, which gives social power to workers, both within the firm, but then, you know, economy-wide, it begins to shift power away from sort of capital organising institutional investors and actually back towards labour, who actually sort of generate value within the firm, but also in sort of non-wage sort of labour as well. So, you know, overarching social wealth funds and things like that can make sure that sort of capital is domesticated and brought under ownership of those who generate the wealth. Mm. As you say, with a real emphasis on the collective there rather than individualised. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's get into the actual proposals. So we'll, we'll start with you, Matthew, in the UK. What would kind of your version or the version that you've worked on of inclusive ownership actually involve? Listeners in the UK might know a bit about the John Lewis model. Is this the same as that? What are we What are we talking about? So the model is requiring sort of medium to large sized companies. Um, well, let me explain like Labour's model because that's the most famous. You know, the one in the similarities, but so. Labour's model would require uh, large companies, that's with 250 employees or more, to establish an inclusive ownership fund, which every year they would, it would be required to issue 1% of outstanding equity, 1% of outstanding shares in the company into this trust, into this fund. That fund would be locked, so those share, shares couldn't be sold, they couldn't be individualised, so that sort of de-risks it. Mm-hmm. And it means that you know the sort of fund is not sort of chasing a quick buck, because actually it's going to, you can't sort of, asset inflates sort of the funds and then sell it. So it's there locked for the long term. And that over time, up to 10% of the company, which would make sort of the inclusive ownership funds the largest single sort of ownership block in basically all large companies or public companies in the UK, mm. over time that would grow. And that would, what that would do, it would rewire income and control rights within the company. So it would take it from external institutional investors and give it to the workers within the firm. And that would mean mm. that workers would be able to get sort of a bonus. So Labour sort of said up to £500 in terms of the dividends issued, a flat sort of egalitarian distribution of income that currently flows to the owners and capital would then flow to the, sort of the workforce itself. But also you'd get the voting rights. So you'd get the mm. firm level voting rights as a collective, democratically voted. So workers would vote sort of the sort of strategies and sort of decision makings that the Inclusive Ownership Fund then votes at sort of annual general meetings, etc., so you'd have this like flow of democracy through the ownership fund from you know, works being able to have strategic voice, but also having decision-making power represented in it, but then also rewiring income, rewiring flows of power in the company. 
Mm. And so, so in practice, how would how would the workers access that? So they'd worked there for a certain amount of time, and then do they have to opt in? Can they opt out? Like, I think in general, the idea is that if you work there for a day or for ten years, etc., you have the same rights. And the idea is that mm. you know, as a workforce, you generate value together, you work together, and that therefore you should have economic rights embedded into how you, as a citizen, operate in the economy. And so it wouldn't be like you can opt out or opt in. It wouldn't be sort of individualized. It'd be very much collective and an economic right embedded institutionally mm. in this sort of ownership fund form. Interesting. Mm. Marjorie, how how uh, different or similar is what Matthew described to the U.S. proposals? It's, it's very similar. Uh, so Bernie Sanders hasn't laid out all of the details, but my understanding at this point is there's less of an emphasis on the social fund and more of an emphasis on, uh, you know, dividends and income for employees. Mm. And again, you know, these are all proposals, so these are not hardened down. But yeah, the basic idea is the same, which is that uh, capital is running off with the wealth that companies create, and workers are the ones who are really creating most of that wealth. And I think it's really important to talk about these frames, you know, this understanding as much as, these, you know, the wonky details, which of course, you know, are also interesting and important. But, but, but to back up even farther, it's you, when I look at this. I mean, I've been watching um, this space for more than twenty years, and and what you see over time is that capital is systematically expelling labor and labor income from the economy. You know, in the U.S., people talk about unemployment is low. It's only 4%. Well, that only includes people who are working, who have been out of work and looking for four weeks. If they're out of work and looking for a year, um, then the number goes to 8%. And if you look at the um, people who are underemployed or in in, in, in insecure employment, it's mm-hmm. 47% of Americans, or, or 45, wow. I believe it is. And it's like, those are people who are self-employed or they're driving Uber or they're contracted or part-time. So 45%. And so, yes, people are working, but they're, but they're desperate. And they don't have enough money in there. They don't know how much work they have from week to week. Now, why did that happen? That happened because if you need increasing income to capital over time, where do you get that? You have to constantly be looking at companies going, well, we need to shave our expenses. And we we define income to labor as an expense, and you're supposed to drive it down. We define income to capital as profit, and you're supposed to drive that up. So in the very worldview, the very framework of the income statement, companies say, I'm supposed to give more to capital and I'm supposed to give less to workers. And that's hardwired into the ownership design. And so how do you begin to to penetrate this? I mean, you know, the system that goes to uh, mechanization and the robots, people act like robots are displacing workers. It's not robots, it's capital mm-hmm. displacing workers. It's saying we want to get rid of workers as much as we can. Well, why is that? Because it's this continual drive that you have to have more profit quarter after quarter, year after year. So if employees can get in there and go, well, well, wait a minute, you know, we own a a chunk of this company. We have a voice in that company. Then the idea is over time, you'll start to have companies embracing a different purpose, looking at labor Mm -hmm. differently. You look at employee-owned companies, they don't lay themselves off. You don't have to do that. So you have to remember these large dynamics. And I think that these proposals are a step in a direction and we need to go much, much farther. We need a democratic economy. My coworker, uh, Ted Howard, 
at the Democracy Collaborative. He and I have a book coming out um, the end of July called The Making of a Democratic Economy, where we, we, we talk about this larger idea. So, yes, there are these proposals, and they're very granular, and they're important, but the big idea is we've got to stop having an economy that's owned by and run by, you know, the 1%. We need an economy that's of by and for the people. One of the things I'm aware of is obviously in the in the states, it seems like part of the reason why neoliberalism was able to take such a firm hold there in kind of Reagan and Thatcher era was because of the idea that the nation was predicated on kind of the myth of freedom, and a lot of you know critique and analysis will say that perhaps it's different in the UK. There's never been this kind of prolific myth of uh, freedom that exists in the states. And so I'm wondering, Marjorie, do you think that these kind of ideas of democratizing ownership in particular would potentially bump up against some of those cultural notions of kind of deep uh, embedded freedom and what it means to um, you know, a, a man, a land, a gun kind of vibe. Like, do you, mm-hmm. do, could you could you see those things perhaps being at odds? Well, I think they're not deeply at odds, although I think there will be those who will try to say that they are. I and mean, we're dealing with a whole series of myths and uh, stories that we've been sold that legitimize the extraction of wealth by the few. And freedom is one of them. But in... Um, Amartya Sen, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, he talks about a new definition of freedom. And he says that in an economic sense, freedom is about removing unfreedoms like poverty, like lack of opportunity, like having no control over your work and just being a cog in a wheel uh, under the control of someone else. And he said, and so we need a new definition of freedom for our era, which is uh, prosperity of all. And we've been sold a story of freedom, which says it's the right of capital to go anywhere on the globe and look for returns uh, that are maximum, look for opportunities to extract maximum wealth for the few. That's the kind of freedom we've been been sold. But that's actually uh, a tyranny. I mean, freedom... Mm is never an absolute. It's always, it always has to be, you know, the freedom of my fist ends at your nose, right? (laughs) (laughs) It it always has, there's always something on the other end. And so you have to have a balancing of rights. And so I think reclaiming freedom is very important part of, of the work of of all of this. Mm, and, and, And indeed of the narrative around it, perhaps. Right. Yes. Matthew, what are your thoughts kind of how neoliberalism plays out in culture here obviously is, is slightly different but deeply interlinked. I think perhaps there's more of a um, focus on kind of fairness and justice and what that looks like. You know, the idea that it, is it really fair for uh, someone who joins a company after a week to have the same rights as someone who's been there for a long time? You know, I think they're the kind of cultural values perhaps rather than freedom that might be invoked as a resistance to this here. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> Potentially, I think, you know, if we're talking about neoliberalism in particular, I think one of the things that was striking about it is sort of the forms of managerialism that it yeah. created in sort of types of governance structures, incentives, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess one, you know, one way of like thinking about how ownership in particular, but, you know, it's a whole series of things can do this, but kind of like clear out that thicket of, you know, the neoliberalization of public services and, and the firm, et cetera, would be actually like saying transform ownership and that transforms the need in some ways for this sort of layer of sort of bureaucratic, you know, very bureaucratic mm-hmm. in some ways. Neoliberalism is very bureaucratic, like layer of managerialism and actually can have much more direct forms of democratic power within the company because they're, you know, the separation of ownership and control is less sort of, sort of intense if actually workers kind of own or part owns sort of the companies 
um, they work for. So I think you could, and then I think you know, no one likes David Brent. So if you, you know, <laughs> if you want a sort of politics that can say like actually like what can it tap into, lean into sort of the cultural sort of valence of ownership of neoliberalism, of, you know, how it's kind of ingrained itself into sort of granularity of British life, then I think you can say actually it has created sort of cultural totems which you could organise against quite effectively. So I want to talk a little bit about what this would mean in practice. So how would it mean the companies are actually run? I want to start with you, Marjorie, but, and then come to you, Matthew. So would the companies be more profitable? Would they be less? Would they be safer, smaller carbon footprint? And what's the evidence for that? Kind of what, what, what could we expect from this? Well, I, I don't think you're necessarily going to see huge changes at the start. I mean, we're talking 10% of, you know, over 10 years would, would build up 10% of, of employee owner, ownership share. I think that you could potentially see uh, a pushback against sending jobs abroad. Hopefully you could begin to see some voice saying we've got to take the climate crisis seriously. I mean, 10% actually in a publicly traded company is is quite substantial. So, uh, yes, I think you could see social and ecological issues begin to have more voice. One of the things I want to emphasize that's happening right now is that big chunks of the firm are being extracted by executives. Mm -hmm. Some people say, oh, this is, this is government, you know, mandating all, you know, this, all this ownership going to employees. Well, actually it's already happening and it's just going to executives. I mean, they've, they've run off with, I I think the top, you know, five, 10 executives at uh, many large publicly traded firms have have five to ten percent of ownership, which is huge. I mean, that is just mm-hmm. the amount of wealth that is actually being quietly taken by these executives is needs to be exposed. And workers are are creating that wealth, and so g- giving it to workers or letting them have the wealth that they're creating is is, is quite just. And then what what people how they decide to run the firm differently. I think it remains to be seen. Mm. Matthew, what, what, yeah, what do you reckon? I, I also wanted to ask if you could pick up the point around uh, some p- portion of the dividends going to government funding as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, I mean, I think in some ways that's exactly the point in terms of what would happen. I mean, I think there's lots of evidence say, like, you know, if, if you have a stake and a say, then you tend to have, like, you know, better forms of work, you know, sort of better conditions, sort of, you know, more durable sort of skill forms of employment. But I think in some ways exactly the moment you know, firms, as mentioned earlier, their point is to kind of generate value that is then extracted outwards to investors. But actually, if sort of the workforce was the, the owners, then they could define how, you know, when surplus is created, how's that spent? So in some ways, you could say, well, actually, rather than just pumping up dividends higher and higher and higher, you could use your shares as a sort of owner. And obviously, you know, the higher the ownership stake, the more power. You could say, well, actually, we're going to you know, translate that up into sort of shorter working week or, you know, mm. investing in technologies that are sort of pro-labor rather than sort of pushing down on the discretion and autonomy of, you know, workers, which is, you know, a lot of what technology does these days in the workplace. So I think in some ways that's exactly the opportunity of democratizing ownership in that you can sort of then reshape what the purpose and sort of mm. outcomes that, you know, collective enterprise, which, you know, is the firm, can generate. Um, and then... The second question was... Oh, government funding. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so I think there is an important debate here, which is if you have firm-level ownership funds, so, you know, the company, you know, Tesco's workers, there's very significant sort of differences in profit between Tesco's and capital-intensive companies, so, like, you know, whether it be manufacturing or in finance, let's say. So, you know, bankers, you know, generate more profits than retail workers. 
And if you just have all the money, all the dividends flowing to the workers, there's a risk that you create between firm and between sector inequalities through the dividends that are then going to the workforce. So one of the reasons for this cap in, in the UK um, is so that you actually, you know, obviously we create value collectively both within the firm, but also, you know, how firms operate in the first place. They're, they're social institutions and they generate value because society as a whole, you know, they operate off a universal inheritance that our wage and non-wage labour and sort of, in, sort of investment, et cetera, et cetera, enables firms to generate profits in the first place. So actually, sort of, you know, there's a claim on the profits over and above the workforce. And so having a cap there stops the inequalities between very high sort of profit firms getting really big bonuses and very low profit firms getting like much smaller ones. So you sort of cap that sort of inequality. And then you make sure that actually society as a whole, whether through taxation or, you know, however you want to sort of shape that sort of above the 500 pounds, you know, pot, you can then sort of say actually society also has a claim on the wealth that we create together. Surely on the caps, though, people wouldn't buy that. They'd just be like, we worked harder, we did better, why should there be a cap? So I think, I mean, that, I think that's one of the sort of political challenges. Yeah. I think there are arguments on, on both sides for it. And I think, you know, sort of, a, sort of you can see how, you know, a tabloid sort of thing being like democratic ownership, the democratic economy will deliver more money in your pocket, you know, no cap, it can go up to X. But then obviously, like, I think we need to recognise that there are inter-firm inequalities that actually yeah. that would lead to sort of significant differences. And that actually a cap of some form is definitely one approach that is you know really sensible if we care not just about shifting decision-making power, but also this sort of change in ownership actually generating more equal outcomes as well. Mm. So I think, you know, it's, it's definitely a point of debate. And I think you'll see that in the silence debate in the US as well. Mm. Marjorie? Yeah, it is a debate in the U.S., and we've done a little bit of uh, research on this, and we find that when you ask people, um, what do you think about some of these funds going to government, people are are negative on it, and we say, what do you think about these dividends going to employees? Uh, people are people are positive about it. Now that may be different in in the U.S. and the U.K. I'm not sure because there has been such a concerted effort to devalue government, discredit mm. government, and make it seem inefficient. And you know, government is the problem, not not the not the solution, as Reagan famously said. So in, in a U.S. context, I think directing dividends to the government would would not work. Now, if you say directing dividends to the community, (laughs) that might Mm. might, uh, fly better. But yes, I do think that the political acceptance of this is going to be something that needs uh, careful thought and uh, watching as as these proposals move forward. Mm. And so, yeah, I want to come back to your point earlier, Matthew, about kind of potentially this changing the purpose or the outcomes of of companies. What would that mean for the economy at large? So looking at some of the parts of the economy that are struggling, like the high street, how would that be different if employees owned a bigger part of these firms? What might be some of the the impacts. So again, so if you had, you could sort of begin to reshape sort of retail, and so actually, what it's about is providing good, secure forms of employment, sort of you know, sort of rooted forms of enterprise that you know, doesn't collapse because you're not trying to extract money for you know. Often you'll get some sort of, some very dodgy sort of investors and sort of you know, leverage buyouts of these type of companies. So actually, like a, sort of an ownership stake that is non-tradable and locked. So you know, there's no risk for the sort of retail workers. So that, which is important mm-hmm. to stress. But you know, you could then begin to say actually, we you know, we don't necessarily want to load ourselves up with debt in a sort of 
sort of takeover. Actually, what we're interested in is sustaining and sort of growing sort of retail on the high street. But that might be, you know, it might not be about maximizing profits. It might be about maximizing employment at good quality and at sort of, you know, a reasonable number of hours a week that can you know, give you a good standard of living, but not necessarily like, you know, 50 hour a week just to maximize the profits. Marjorie, do you do you feel like in the US at least there would be potentially kind of a bit of a tension between what we might see in an ownership model, the kind of outcomes that we might see that, that Matthew just listed, and the kind of role of business in the broader economy? Like, could there be some friction there? Well, I think where the friction is going to be is with the idea of what business ought to be. So, you know, mm. I think I think that we're, we're pretty dug in on the idea that capital owns business and capital has a right to maximum and perpetual returns. And you're starting to challenge that and saying, no, workers have, have a right to the wealth that they help to create. I, I think you're going to see pushback on that in the same, mm. uh, you know, one of the things that Ted and I talk about in the book is, is capital bias. In the extractive economy, there's a deep bias embedded not only in policy, but also in the actual structure of firms and, and the purpose of firms and who owns them. It's all, it's all oriented toward capital. And whenever you challenge a deep bias like that, I mean, you know, we've seen issues around race bias and, mm. and sex bias, and at least those are considered illegitimate. They're not gone, but, but capital bias or capitalism <laughs> is still very much with us and alive and hasn't even been challenged Conceptually, I think so that that speaks to the work that Matthew and I are doing and others are, are, are doing. And, and so are you going to get pushback? Are you going to have alarm? Are you going to have anger? Of course you will. In the same way that it has happened with uh, with racism and sexism, there's going to be there's going to be pushback. But I think what we're talking about really is aligning firms in the way that they're ideally supposed to function. That if you if you create the wealth, you're supposed to have a claim on it. That's how how this economy is supposed to work. And we know that it works better that way. And there's higher productivity in employee-owned firms. There's a lower turnover and, and, and so forth. So I think we're talking about a, a well-functioning economy, but there's going to be a lot of um, people who disagree with that. Mm. Okay. I want to I kind of want to start wrapping us up. But the, what I want to know at the moment um, from both of you is how generally have businesses reacted to these ideas if, if they're kind of at that stage? We've talked a little bit about the idea of kind of government encroaching on, on freedoms and property theft and that kind of thing. And so we're in a world where the government announces both in the US and the UK that they're going to implement all of your ideas tomorrow. Uh, what do you reckon big business would do? Uh, Matt, I'm going to ask you first, and then Marjorie. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, the more sort of, I guess, like, you know, progressive-minded ones might say, okay, fine, this is like a challenge to our power, but it's about, you know, broadening out democracy, the values that we notionally sort of are supposed to sort of support, you know, democracy, mm. giving sort of people a fair stake, a fair say, a fair share. And also, I think, you know, in sort of detailed senses, you know, expanding ownership and sort of lo- locating it within the firm means that actually lots of companies which currently might be sort of, you know, vulnerable to very hostile takeovers that are very bad for the company's health in the long run, actually, you know, worker ownership or ownership funds could actually be a, like a sort of ballast and a sort of block against very hostile takeovers. So there's a world in which like business might say, hey, this is like actually could be a really sort of good step towards sort of a sort of democratic economy, but in which like, yeah, there's lots of winners here. Mm. But at the same time, in you know, another world, more, in another world <laughs> yeah. and I think the world that, you know, is much more likely in some ways, um, and you kind of have already slightly seen that from the reaction, um, is 
transforming ownership, democratizing ownership, sort of going after institutions of property, which are socially defined. So, you know, democracies have the right to sort of shape property relations in ways that maximize you know, freedom in that deep sort of egalitarian sense, not sort of, you know, the sort of gun-toting sense we're talking about. I mean, I think it goes exactly about the sort of private power of capital in the economy. And so I think mm. that, because it is such a challenge to that sort of core nodal power of capital to sort of decide and claim wealth that is socially generated, you will see, you know, more than most things a challenge. Because this is about institutionally rearranging and restructuring power in the economy rather than just like boosting, you know, demand or... Yeah, sort of, it's a whole different term, it's sort of, Yeah, exactly. It goes to the sort of root architecture of how the economy operates and for whom. And so in that sense, I think... What really this will boil down to in some ways is not the sort of technical and wonky details. It will be about how can sort of the, you know, proponents of the democratic economy mobilise the social power, the movements, the, sort of the politics that can embed these institutions that can take on sort of, you know, the sort of those who occupy the commanding heights of the extractive economy, take that on and actually sort of transition through sort of institutional and political sort of transformation, a much more democratic, pluralistic ecology of ownership. So I think that will be the challenge. Mm. You know, I think with all these things, the challenge is never really sort of technical as such, it's political and power-based. Mm. So the real kind of site of struggle, as we've explored a little bit, is around the... Part of it is the cultural stuff, you know, the framing, how people think about this, and as you say, how it's embedded within a much broader suite of ideas that are around transforming how we think about uh, the economy and who and what it's for. Marjorie, what do you reckon? Big business, what's John going to say? I'm of two minds on this. That was a joke about the fact that all the all the men on the uh, on who are CEOs, like seven of eight of them, are called John. <laughs> yeah, it went over the the producers and Matthew's head, so I had to explain. Sorry, Marjorie, carry on. Yeah, in a way, I think it's unfortunate that these inclusive ownership funds were introduced before some other moves that could have been done for employee ownership. Because in the U.S., when you have there was you may may or may not have heard of this, but there was actually legislation passed, even under Trump, that is advancing employee ownership through the Small Business Administration. There's new law that says the SBA has to take up employee ownership in, uh, in, as part of its toolkit. That is favored by Republicans. So employee ownership is one of the few things in policy in the U.S. that crosses the aisle. And it's because Republicans, and most business people are Republicans, they think employee ownership is great because it helps employees think like owners. It helps them mm. think, where does the revenue come from? How do, we, how do we be more productive and hold down expenses? And so it really gets, in a way, it gets owners and employees on the same side. Uh, and so it's favored by both Democrats and Republicans for different reasons, but they tend, you know, if you're talking to a business audience, you frame it differently. Yeah. You know, for example, we're, I've been doing some research on mission led employee owned firms. And these are companies like there's even Recology in San Francisco. It's a $1.2 billion company. It's a hundred percent owned by its employees. It has a deep ecological mission of a world without waste it's a waste um, pickup and recycling and composting company, and they view all uh, waste as a resource to be that has should be have its highest and best uses. And employee ownership makes this company very very strong. These kinds of companies, we call them the best of the best. When you look at B Lab, which certifies companies for their social impact. We found 50 of these companies that are mission-led, employee-owned. Many of them are B Corps or benefit corps. They have an embedded uh, social purpose. 82% of them were named uh, best for the world by B Lab in, in the last two years. And so these 
are companies that have exceptional social and ecological impact, and they're owned by their employees. So, mm. it, and you know, I like to say to business people, this is business of the future. This is where business needs to go. Yes, it. These are, are serious businesses, and they have. Uh, you know, serious financial size and they have profits, but they also have, they're serious about their social impact. Now that's a story that business is going to buy into. The left is going to buy into a story. Let's rewire capital. Let's seize them. Let's seize the ownership from capital and redistribute it to workers. It's a very different frame. Mm. <laughs> to me, it's the work is the same, but there are two very, very different ways that you tell this story. Now I, I would like to see, uh, the left work on its storytelling a little bit more than we have. Yeah, me too. I mean, that is part of my day job is kind of helping the left to figure out uh, what strategic communications means to us. And as you say, communicating different things to different people, mm-hmm. which is 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 not um, without its complexity and, and pitfalls, but um, is certainly necessary, as you say. Okay, so we are almost at time, but the one thing that I wanted to ask both of you before we go is, are there places that are doing this, countries or or kind of cities, places that are like at least trialing some of these ideas? Is there success? Can we be hopeful? Matthew, we'll start with you. I think we can always be hopeful. I oh, think, great. you know, exactly. Um, but, you know, uh, so radical hope means accepting that actually, you know, we're up against a challenging environment. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Marjorie's mentioned sort of, and the US is an example, so there are sort of, you know, very purposeful, mission-driven, employee-owned businesses, which, you know, are the types of sort of democratic enterprise that we would like to scale. I mean, I think, you know, obviously in terms of like, you know, things like, you know, we mentioned right at the beginning of the show, this idea about, oh, you know, weapons, if your kid twists the ankle and that, you know, sort of is an emergency and that's sort of inhibition and freedom. Well, we can look to something like, you know, we don't think about it like that, but the public ownership of health provision in the UK is still a source of, you know, hope in terms of actually institution invention is what's required. So yeah. actually we need to invent institutions and that source of hope. And then there are obviously like, there's lots of examples, whether it's the cooperative sector in the UK, whether it's, you know, sort of employee ownership in America, whether it's, sort of, you know, sort of success of lots of sort of, employing businesses in, say, Germany. There's lots of examples you could point mm. towards, whether it's specific companies or sectors that are particularly strong. But I think the key sort of resource of hope is exactly that we have the capacity to invent institutions, to build scale, to rewire and sort of make better how we commonly come together and create and do and sort of make and share value. And I think that's the resource of hope rather than sort of specific companies or models. Mm. Marjorie, give us some hope. <laughs> yeah, I am just back from visiting Mondragon in Spain, and mm. this is the largest worker-owned federation in the world. It has uh, revenues of about 11 billion euros. It's over 100 companies that are worker-owned, and they're they're federated together. And it's extraordinary when you've been this Mondragon has been around since the 1950s. It's a large-scale society-level experiment in in worker ownership and what you see in in the communities in this Basque region of Spain that have 50% employee ownership of firms you see they have very little poverty they have very little huge wealth so there's this compression of income you walk around the streets and and there isn't this uh, desperation and worry and franticness people are leading ordinary lives that everybody has enough and uh, unemployment is low. And the statistics are there that it shows over 50 years, yes, if you have widespread employee ownership, you have a more prosperous society and everyone, everyone thrives. So we know, we know it can be done. 
Nice. Okay. I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling like I've got a job to do. Get out there and work. <laughs> it's it's the hope that kills you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, okay. So sadly, that is all we've got time for on this episode one of the new series of the Weekly Economics Podcast. Marjorie Kelly from the Democracy Collaborative, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Uh, go to our website at democracycollaborative.org and lots of lots of great stuff. And the book, you got a book, plug that again. Yeah, we have a new book coming out the end of July. Ted Howard and I authored it. It's called The Making of a Democratic Economy. It's going to be released in both the UK and the US. And I hope people will will check it out. Woohoo. Okay. And Matthew Lawrence from Commonwealth, thank you for being here again. Same question. Where can we find out? Where can we get more Matthew Lawrence? Um, you can, um, we can find Commonwealth, let's say, on uh, <laughs> common-wealth. What's your address? Yeah, common-wealth.co.uk. Um, and there'll be stuff there. I think there's, there's going to be papers on the ownership funds, like a sort of articulation of how it would work in sort of a lot of detail, both the UK and also the US, coming out later this summer. So that's definitely worth checking out if sort of ownership is your boat that's been floated. <laughs> nice, nice. A lovely way to end. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode and having us back in your life and in your ears, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly EconPod on Twitter and our producer does read them all. I promise. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. Music